Ignite your imaginations, my incorrigible and incredulous interlopers, as we immediately initiate our ignominious incursion into the incorporated imaginings of indigenous Indian imitation in this week's installment of Mangum Reads. I'm Spencer, and with me as always are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? And please ignore the dog in the background. <laughs> I'm doing well, Spencer. Gonna, I'm doing well, too, and I would say he's uh, indispensable for each of our individual <laughs> recordings of these podcasts. He is an integral fixture of our work. <laughs> Well, Plus this of an week... interruption. <laughs> okay, let's keep this going as long as we can. <laughs> this week, as a bit of a break from our usual deep dive into long novel series, we are doing a short story. This one entitled Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience, TM, by Rebecca Roanhorse, which came out in 2017 and notably immediately went on to win both the Hugo and Nebula in its pending year. So we went into this with high expectations, and guys, in terms of your initial impressions to describe to our listeners, what did you think? Uh, I didn't go with... Uh go in with as high expectations as you did because i didn't look into the background as much as you did um Mm -hmm. but um the other side of this is we all consumed this in a similar manner which is somewhat different than much of our uh previous uh delves into different books where we all listened to an episode of a podcast labar burton reads and i think that was that it's instrumental in our uh, enjoyment of uh, this story because it takes on a a little bit different character when it's a lot more of a radio play I would say than just a reading of a book and so even a lot of audiobooks on on say audible where the author just reads it are a different experience and I would say that there are a few um, audible originals that do a little bit more in terms of um, and Spencer, we'll go back to this uh, piece of information that you didn't know, fully work, uh, <laughs> where uh, sort of day-to-day sounds and things like that are uh, recapitulated in uh, the format for uh, TV or radio. Um, and I would say is a fairly integral part of uh, this piece that we enjoyed. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that um, this is this is a weird piece for me because, like, I am very much a sort of visual visual learner, and so I've always read whatever it is that we're discussing, whether I've listened to it in some other format or not. But I just listened to this one, and um, you know, I think BJ, you're right. There is certainly a difference in kind of like the production, the sort of um, radio play or stage play production of what's going on here, which is one thing, although it is like relatively sparse, it's not like intrusive production. Um, but then there is also the nostalgia of LeVar Burton reading something to me, which <laughs> may have inevitably um, colored my uh, my interpretation of this piece. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, that, that man has been a professional narrator, professional reader for quite a few years now. And I just, I adore the glee that he goes into this with. I mean. It has been a long time since I did since I did reading Rainbow, um, but he is clearly just over the moon excited to be reading these stories to us, and it is an infectious kind of enthusiasm. Yeah, I, I, it also is funny to me because I know that at least for me, it was around the same time that he that he became part of my life in reading Rainbow, where I was exposed to him on Star Trek because my parents would watch it, and so mm-hmm. like I have a very interlaced view of LeVar Burton as a as 
the engineer Jordy LaForge on Star Trek <laughs> and the dude that presents stuff on Reading Rainbow. And like, they're sort of not the same person in my head, even though like I functionally understand that they clearly are, but I just can't put them together. But yeah, it, it was a wonderful way to go through this story. And um, I very much agree with you, Sarah, that like it wasn't intrusive. And um, I, I would say that um, what's now live from here and used to be a Prairie Home Companion had like different radio stories that had sort of similar Foley work and other sound effects. And I feel like that was way more intrusive and necessary. Mm -hmm. Whereas because this was a short story, it wasn't necessary and they didn't uh, inveigle as much uh, of the sound as they might have otherwise. Well, and I think it's a little bit of a function too. It's interesting you bring up like Prairie Home Companion or, um, you know, something like that that, um, you know, this is, because this is a short story, as you said, it comes from a different genre and sort of requires different things around it um, or lack of things around it to really bring it to life. Although maybe it really only requires LeVar Burton to bring it to life. So I don't know. <laughs> I go back to that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I also feel like I should mention that uh, when you informed me about this podcast, I literally downloaded every single episode immediately. I haven't listened to many more because of this podcast and needing to listen to uh, this your authentic Indian experience. And I've also been going through the second in the series that we just finished up from The Broken Earth. Mm-hmm. And so, and reading our next book, uh, <laughs> The Likeness by Tana French. <laughs> And also finishing up a different book that somebody else had recommended. So my consumption of literature has been very tightly uh, regulated in the past couple of uh, hmm. past week or two. Well, we can talk off air about um, the multiple recommended episodes that I have. Awesome. Well, in, ter- in terms of the other initial things we should address, uh, we've kind of created a new tradition on the show of where, Sarah, you again have a, dr- a drink of the episode for us, do you not? I do have a drink of the episode for you, Spencer. Um, so I am drinking what I am terming, and I think this will become clear why, a white wolf. <laughs> Very appropriate. Yes. Go and on. So I've taken a wolf cocktail, which I don't know if it's really a thing, but it's like the first internet hit you get when you search for a white wolf cocktail, and it's just a wolf cocktail. And so it is um, muddled jalapeno and simple syrup and tequila and lime juice and orange juice with a um, jalapeno slice garnish. But to make it a white wolf instead of just a wolf, I have also shaken it with an egg white. Oh, that sounds Mm. very interesting. It's actually very good. And I had a couple of testers before we started. So apologies for any... That's exciting. So, so the the recipe that I see is six slices of fresh jalapenos. Mm-hmm. Did you use six slices of fresh jalapenos? Because that might be a little spicy. I did. It's three muddled. I think it's three muddled in there, and then it's three as a garnish. And the gotcha. three as a garnish don't like really do all that much. It's not particularly spicy. Gotcha. Uh, would it make me hiccup for about two hours? It would not. That it is bit? not Nashville okay. spicy. Nashville hot chicken is it, in drink is it form. Spicier than ketchup. <laughs> oh, come on, better than that. <laughs> Um, it might hit. It might hit that threshold. Yes. Mm, okay. Well, uh, drink the episode for all of y'all that are listening. Feel free to take a break for a minute. Go make that, and then come back. It'll put you in the appropriate mood as we continue on through the story. That's exciting, Spencer. Do you have uh, any drinks to bring? Because the drink that I have is more depressing than interesting. 
um, but an Aldi opened up near me and they sell wine that is less than $3 a bottle. And I decided I had to try some. Is it the Winking Owl wine? It is the Winking Owl. (laughs) (laughs) And I have (laughs) a Shiraz. Um, I think I got something that's a little bit better as well, but I've been drinking that over the last couple of days and um, it needs to get finished because I feel really bad about dumping it, though I'm not quite on that line, but it is is approaching that line or to cope with it. That, that, I have obviously had winking owl wine in my life and um it is a third drink of the evening kind of wine yeah it's <laughs> a good way of putting that <laughs> to answer your question bj i am presently drinking a lukewarm tap water out of a half broken plastic cup that i'm getting worried is leaking on the table so that, that that is my drink of choice for this evening again spencer so i i feel like i just need to quickly bring this up and then we'll i swear listeners we will get into the book and maybe discuss this more on our possibly upcoming whiskey on the weekend um that i do not understand how you live your life and since i basically <laughs> haven't like spent reasonable amounts of time with you as an adult like once we left college just essentially as we've both been visiting north carolina Mm-hmm. Like the life that you live is inconceivable to me. <laughs> <laughs> to keep to the eye theme, I appreciate that. Um, anyway, well, in terms of exploring the story, how do we want to start? Because, as you, Sarah, I think you advised us, um, Lavar Burton seems to really enjoy very much Black Mirror kind of twisting, subversive little short stories. So, really, the text of this story is going in one direction, and what it's actually trying to say is going in another. Uh, do we just want to go through a basic run through of the plot and then talk about what it's actually talking about from there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that makes sense. It's a, I mean, in the realm of short story, like this is a really pretty short story. Um, oh yeah. And so yeah, I think. Sorry, I think we can talk about the plot and um, maybe do a, a sort of short pricey of the of the plot and then kind of get into it because like the plot itself is convoluted to some extent but if you take the fifty thousand foot view it's relatively simple right um the convolution comes in when you start diving into kind of what we're what we're really talking about anyway yeah what's happening is pretty simple why it's happening and what it represents is a deeper dive that we may debate a little bit yes and so maybe i think um i think it was you spencer who in one of our um kind of slack threads had suggested that we really needed to talk about the opening quote um, to this story. Is that right? I wanted to come back to that. Okay. Yeah, because it breezed through and I, it was one of those things where some, I heard it and it went, well, that's really smart in a way I probably want to come back to kind of So thing. why don't so, we do the same thing here? Let's put it out there and then talk about the plot and then maybe come back to it. But I do think it's important to sort of start with that quote. And okay. the thing that I sort of wanted to toss in here is I did post our Slack discussion of this on our website and maybe it'll be released on our Facebook page, and I might know the person that is uh, (laughs) dealing with that, though he's a little bit um, unreliable sometimes. Mm. Um, But yeah, so all of that is posted, so if you want to see all of our notes and discussions uh, that go along with the Authentic Ending Experience, you can find that on uh, mangumtalks.com, our discussion for your Authentic Indian Experience TM boost. I do love that even our discussions in text just immediately descend into non sequiturs. I think we spent about 10 minutes in there just discussing pugs, which I'm sure had a... How did we start on that? Is it the author has pugs? Yes, it is. is. The author has pugs. 
That's enough for us to start discussing pug health problems and pulling up Wikipedia pages. Yeah, I, yes. I, I started that and then checked out of that very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Chaos right. agent. Well, so the, well. the, qu- the quote that begins this story is a Sherman Alexie quote from How to Write the Great American Indian Novel. And Sherman Alexie is an interesting figure kind of in his own right that we may or may not want to talk about at some point. But this comes from him. And we begin with, Quote, in the great American Indian novel, when it is finally written, all of the white people will be Indians, and all of the Indians will be ghosts. Hmm. From there, we insert into an interesting enough little short story, which is one of those classic ones which is seemingly set a short period in the future, but is otherwise very much our real world. Mm-hmm. Of where our main character, whose name is going to sadly leave me right now as I'm about to talk about him. Jesse uh, turned black. Mine. Thank you. <laughs> is a mid-40s Native American who is living in semi-rural Arizona and works for a company which offers authentic experiences, seemingly based on his description primarily, at least his trade, into very Hollywood stereotypical visions of Native American life set in the 1800s. He is something resembling a tour guide, I would suppose. Uh, He's the one that leads you through whatever experience you've paid to receive and he seems to specialize in vision quests of where he is very i'm keep on using the word stereotypical but that is the nature of the experience that they are offering stereotype leading you through a very classic stereotypical i am your native american guide i shall help you find your spiritual animal and you shall leave this experience improved and spiritually awakened uh and he makes a bit of a career off that that he is not particularly proud of his wife outright despises but he is for a variety of reasons, unemployable in any other way, and it's a paycheck that he has to keep getting. Yeah, and he talks about, like, very early in the story, or at least the narrator, um, talks about how Jesse has, is, is of course conflicted about this role, right? Um, and in fact, he sort of takes on a quote-unquote more Indian last name in True Blood when he is, um, when he is working. And I love that he calls it a nom de rev. Um, in this, instead of a nom de plume. And he talks about very, very early on that, like, his job is actually made much easier, at least, by the fact that he can tap into these um, kind of well-worn, stereotypical pathways of what Indians are, right? And so the fact that there are all of these movies that are, like, super problematic, but, like, instantly legible and recognizable in terms of a cultural consciousness... Um, you know, the Lone Ranger is really helpful to him as he tries mm-hmm. to come up with, like, okay, how do I talk to these sort of tourists in this authentic Indian? Yeah, and I would say, like, it harkens to, you know, the Indian of Cupboard and sort of all of the mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. touchstone uh, representations of indigenous Native American tribes that are definitely more Hollywood than actual which i feel like becomes a major theme in this short story yeah Mm -hmm. in many ways he's experiencing that kind of uh hollywood experience of native american with the taurus and enjoys it in the same way because it is as foreign to him as it is to them Mm -hmm. it is not anything resembling what his personal life is like but in his kind of flippant opinion people don't really want to experience the real indian experience they want that until the movies and he's there to offer that to them um but not even necessarily in the way that he wants. I mean, he talks about he talks about pretty early on that he wants to give them a different kind of experience that still meets the classic movies, but he wants to draw from, like, Little Big Man, which was one of the original kind of subversive views of Native Americans trying to address what they may have been having really actual people rather than the stereotypes that were put upon them. 
and so depicts the Battle of Little Bighorn from the Native American perspective. And he thinks to offer that to the Taurus, and is almost immediately shouted down as just an utter time waster that no experience, because they don't want to have to go through a battle kind of experience. They don't want any of the actual elements of realism that might go into this. They want a very pat, touristy, walk through the Hall of Presidents kind of experience of the American life, and the company makes apparently a pretty good business off. Yeah, and so we really start out in this story with him kind of already in hot water in this job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the things, like, this this whole story for me, because we start off from that place of kind of uncertainty about what is going to happen to him, like, takes on a quality for me of just, like, experiencing a bad dream where you are constantly running and running and running and trying to get to the classroom where you're supposed to take your exams or where you're supposed Mm -hmm. to have a meeting or whatever and you can't quite get there like that's what this feels like to me because like spoiler never really gets any better yeah and (laughs) it's a very frenetic yeah uh, book and and or or story and and it's also the uh sort of vignettes that you get in his life and the uh the small pieces that that are enforced are very um difficult you know they're they're not easy parts they're they're uh in a lot of other books you'll sort of get some lead up to a difficult part to to some uh strife between characters or something like that and this story is essentially other than his interaction with white wolf that that we will get to shortly sort of seems to like go between those in sort of an almost strobe light fashion Mm mm-hmm one notable thing to point out is we, we are referring to him in third person, but the book does notably continually refer to our main character in second person. It is similar to the last book we read. We are you as we're going through this tale. Yes. Uh, did, did that work for you guys as well as we talked about it worked in the fifth season? Did it help you get into the character? Um, Some? Yeah, I, I feel like it was not it was not the same experience of being in second person as in the fifth season. Um, but I also think mm-hmm. that it wasn't really meant to be, and I don't. Maybe this is, I'd, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this, both of you. But for me, this was a you that was actually meant to to kind of jar you and put you at a distance a little bit, instead of that kind of like let me wrap you into, let me really wrap you into this story. But I think by the end of this, by the end of this this short story, the idea of what authenticity and what a real experience is and what an experience of the self is is so complicated that the you of this story was always really fraught. Um, and I think it was meant to be. But I, so, that could be a little bit of an apologist for a you that is not as successful. I don't know. Um, but that worked for me, just not in sort of drawing me in in the same way. I feel like I want to come back to this at the end because there. <laughs> I feel like it comes... Uh, hand in hand with the what did you think was going on in the story before it finished question which I'd like to come back to once we cover what went on in the story (laughs) because I think that yeah that is uh intrinsic to to whether the you worked or not all right put a pin in it we'll come back yeah okay well I mean as you talked about Sarah he is a guy that uh 
mean, BJ Sarah, the story is frenetic, and Sarah, you talked about how he's a guy that's very much on edge, and stories always with a certain underlying tension, and that's really apparent from every end of this guy's life, of where, at work, he's on the edge because he's bosses. The story starting out with him, his boss being pissed at him for wasting resources in a boondoggle that didn't pay off. His relationship with his wife is relatively... I wouldn't exactly call it warm, but I almost call it tortured to a certain degree in terms of how they interact with each other. His economic standpoint is difficult at best. He's in a decaying ranch with little career prospect as a mid-40s guy on a career that has little hope of advancement. So we're going into this feeling always on edge as to, our, as to the character's state and what might happen to him. The slightest little nudge might push him off how he's so carefully balancing. And we see that pretty early on continue in terms of his interaction with the co-workers where we get an interesting early conversation that he has between his boss and one of his uh, fellow tour guides I'll call them into these experiences uh, Daran where he's immediately forced to kind of take sides between the two of them as to his opinion about the nature of their work is it just a business that is appealing to the tourists the way they want, or is it by its nature exploitive, particularly with their new proposal of the Squaw Fantasy, which Daran, being seemingly the person that's being tasked with leading them through this, is less than happy about. Yeah, um, and I think that there's sort of an interesting uh, double standard, I would say, um, where Jesse sort of puts on a body that isn't his that is more shall we say tempting to the middle-aged woman that seems to often take part in these experiences and the exploitiveness of this squaw fantasy is very much like a male-female dynamic rather than just like a exploitive of the uh indigenous indian dynamic or at least that's how i read it well, yeah, and it, it gets, I mean, it gets complicated because the the sort of narrative of the exploitation of indigenous peoples in the popular culture or pop, popular consciousness gets gendered as well, right? And so there's this double... Um, yeah, there, I think yeah, the difference between kind of like a noble thing. savage and, you know, the Pocahontas... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Kind she's of, the classic mm-hmm. example in terms of the very gendered response and gendered reaction to Native Americans going back to literally freaking Jamestown. Yeah. Of where one side is this distant, hostile savage, and the other one is the nubile princess that's going in to save the white man. Uh, it, it has been that way since the first time our settlers set up a permanent colony on this shore, and apparently they are successfully feeding into it with the new experiences that they're offering. And it's interesting, too, because, and we haven't quite gotten to the gotten to the point where Jesse is actually going into the experience and crafting himself for kind of the vision quest that he is supposed to be leading. Um, but when he does, immediately after this conversation, where Darian is so um, incensed by the idea of this sort of squaw fantasy um, that she's being asked to, to lead... It does seem to me that when Jesse goes in and kind of crafts his body in a different way in this experience, like that is more for him than for a sort of outside observer. Whereas Darian is being asked to do that and demanded to do that for literally just an outside observer. Yeah, and I I guess I very much agree with you, but the... like, I guess it is for him, but I feel like part of that is, like, he has this consciousness of he will get more repeat customers and better reviews and whatever else 
if he looks an appropriate part. Well, that's true. And that is certainly underlying all of this, right? Is that you have to look the part. Um, Right. And then later we get, you have to not only act the part, but you have to like speak the part correctly to the person who you're interacting with and what do they expect. And so all of that gets wrapped up in this sort of like, in the... um, in the marginalized communities that we're talking about. It's just that the intersections of um, both Native Americanness and indigenous identity with gender kind of compound each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I, I was think in, the, go ahead, Spencer. Sorry, I, saw, I thought the twin sides of his interactions with other people really played out in his interactions with his two coworkers of where his immediate response is not his own opinion. He's not even, he never really thinks about what his own opinion mm-hmm. is. It's what can I say to these two people to get the most out of their response? How can I appeal to them in a way that best benefits me while thinking in the back of his head throughout all this that honestly he's using this for not only a, 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 an ongoing career, but... He talks about when he gets into the pod that he shivers with excitement, that he enjoys the sensations, that it really does play into a sense of wish fulfillment, of where he's got a pretty negative, down opinion of himself. He doesn't have much in the way of self-image. The book takes pains to talk about how that he has a pretty negative outlook of self or what his potential future is. And so this opportunity to appear sexy in a way he's never been before, to appear like the star athlete, to have these people come to him to lead them through an experience is something he otherwise doesn't get to experience in the world. So it, it, is, a, it is a measure of appealing to others, but it's also a measure of crafting a self he's never otherwise gotten a chance to have or experience. Yeah. I get, so the, the uh, vignette that I was going to quickly go on is um, in driving to California, I spent um, about 10, 12 hours in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I it was the least pleasant place that I was on that I stopped in and all my drive out to California from Illinois. And I joked about it being purgatory, but, um, the expectation of the art of like the, the native American Indian population is silver and turquoise. And there's like beaded stuff and things like that. And there's just like this horribly depressing, uh, open air market sort of in the center of the city where there are loads of pretty much entirely women that are like have beaded things in front of them and some have like the silver and turquoise stuff and like every shop has like the same silver and turquoise jewelry and it's all exactly the same and it is just it's just awful to go through i guess in my opinion and i just like it, it was just depressing to me and then there's a native american museum that has like some other stuff and other um, art and other uh, like history things and then has like lo- local children's experiences and like their writings and it's just it's so different than what is eat purchased and eaten up and expected by the tourists there and it's just I highly recommend going there for like three to six hours depending on what you can tolerate um, but um and, you know, there's some other worthwhile things to see um, in terms of, like, art museums and stuff like that. But it was just awfully depressing. And so when I was listening to this, ex- like, them talking about, like, what people expect of them and that it always has to be the same and it's always the same spirit journey and you have a spirit guide and he talks in the same way and wears the same clothes and, like, you can see it embodied in a city and... 
it's fascinating to me because loads and loads of tourists go there and consume it and I guess I had like the opposite reaction it's just like I don't want any of this this is just oppressive like it's just like the people that you're demanding like the sameness from is just so like revolting and I just hated it and so like the some of the things that they talked about just like brought up that memory of just like I did not like spending any time in this city and like what it was well and it's I mean it's a commodification of a culture that like it's a it's a commodification of a culture that was wiped out historically by exactly the people who are now like idealizing it as a culture to consume right um and so now that it has been like and not just now but once it was sort of wiped out or effectively wiped out as far as a sort of like mainstream culture goes and then emptied out of its like specific significations then you can put whatever you want into it which is exactly what is happening in these sort of like experiences that this company is offering um you can put whatever you want into them as long as they have the trappings of what you think is native american right and i think that the other side and and they do talk about it i believe right around here that you know it's not his tribe that he's referencing or referring Mm -hmm. to or doing anything with it's just the you know native american experience it's it's the uh you know what did the native americans do right And, and you know it's it's sort of the joke that you know every european comes to the u.s to experience america and it's just like well those are completely different things you know if you go to new york city or somewhere in wyoming that it's essentially a different country Mm -hmm. um and so you know talking about how you know the experience that they want is not a specific to a tribe or specific to a person or anything other than this idealized and hollywood uh version of what it means to be native american mm-hmm. yeah and jesse goes They're into this for- sometimes because he worries about like am i am i going to and i've I, well now maybe i'm doing it i've forgotten the tribes that he he pulls up but like am i going to pueblo am i going to navajo right like <laughs> is this too specific yeah. in a way that is not um, that is not intelligible to my audience. Right. You're, you're here to appeal to their nostalgia more than anything else. Their own experiences growing up with imagery of Native Americans rather than anything that's authentic mm-hmm. because that would be foreign to them. They're here to be comfortable. They're here to explore something that they already know through a lens that they can control. They're not here to be pushed. They're not here to be challenged. They're here to be satiated, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so I actually did a report on the Pueblo Indians when I was in grade school. <laughs> and it was a very, like wait a minute, like, why are they all called Indians? This has nothing to do with, like, all of the under other Indians that I've ever, like, come into contact <laughs> with as, like, a six or seven-year-old. And it's not what we keep talking about the Pueblo, because the author is half Pueblo, and I think at one point in this story says at one point, no one knows what the Pueblo culture is, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, let's go into what the first experience we get is, because it kind of sets everything that comes after. What happens when our main character meets he that will be dubbed White Wolf? Well, wait, can we, before we do that, can we talk just a, back up just a skosh and talk a little bit about, like, how these experiences actually happen? Sure. It appears to be a very classic kind of virtual reality setting of where there are these own individual little pods that you are plugged into uh, for full sensory immersion. uh, Sights, feelings, smells, sounds uh, in a digital world format. He talks 
about um, the sounds, the first smells. This, I think he even says the first sensation he always has is the smell of the, uh, the grass and the wood smoke as he's in, suddenly appearing in the middle of the plains. So it comes across as a very authentic experience that you're kind of teleporting <laughs> into. Um, sorry, thank you, I'll keep the word. Uh, and he, as the tour guide, emerges in there first and kind of accepts people in based on what their requests are and whether they're seeking him out individually or whether he can accommodate what their array of criteria is for their particular experience. So the other thing I wanted to toss in here, which I found interesting, is that um, she, uh, she does, Rebecca Roanhorse mentioned smell in her description of virtual reality, and that's essentially one of the few things that like we don't have a good handle on in terms of uh, virtual simulation. And for the most part, uh, other than, I guess, taste, but taste is essentially smell um, for you know 90% of it, like we don't have a good handle on how that works. And um, actually one side of my lab has a little, has a portion of uh, sensory, we, we do sensory uh, neuroscience and so olfaction or the sense of smell is like one of the sides of the lab. And it's one of the weirder ones that sort of has like nothing to do with anything else in the brain <laughs> and is way older and weirder and just, a completely you know separate on the side of everything uh sense and so it's always interesting to me that uh virtual realities that take that into account and the ones that are just like oh it's you know just the same as the other senses and but it really does help you place where you are and what you're doing and i think that's interesting because like i think of it and i don't know if this is because it is more more difficult or less likely to be replicated in some sort of um, kind of experience that you're having. But like smell and taste, which as you point out are essentially the same, like those are the two things that at least for for me, and I think other people feel this way too, at least in a lot of the like literature, um, in like literature, literature, not anyway. Um, Big L, <laughs> not little L. Mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. is that smell and taste are really the senses that tap into something even more primal than anything else and really take you back um, more than anything else. Very true. I mean, the, the, those, are definitely the, those are definitely the senses that I have the, I guess, the least amount of control over in terms of being able to, then co- coming back when they want to, of where I, I remember back in like fifth grade lab or whatever else when we first did the uh, uh, dissection of uh, fetal pigs uh, and that smell of formaldehyde from right then will just come back to me at various moments and I'll immediately be triggered back into that memory, just instantaneously. And that's really just the power of this kind of smells or tastes of where rather than having to summon them, rather than have to go back do the Rolodex of your memory to pull things, if those particular triggers hit, you're there in a way that is just, as you said, very primal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Proust in the Madeleine. Like, this is the seat of memory um, is in these types of things. And so I think that's why it's so important, um, as you point out, BJ, that, like, this is where he starts. And this is what really like sets the scene for him. And then he needs to set the scene and the experience for his uh, tourist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to note that like when they, they enter into this space of the experience, that Jesse gets there first. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a couple of seconds there. And then he's kind of waiting for, okay, where's, who, where's my client, right? And I got to say, they are really expecting him to be kind of a master of improv with this, mm-hmm. of where 
rather than this being custom tailored in advance, rather than being an experience of where you submit it and then you show up and we have it ready to go, he's got a few seconds before the details just start coming in and he just has to adapt. Which either says they're very used to just making this very much just that they change the decor, they change the facade, otherwise it's the same experience, or they're really counting on him a lot to offer something very quickly tailored on very little notice. I'm guessing probably the former. Well, and whether it's the former or the latter, this is a theme that will also come up in our next novel that we're reading. <laughs> <laughs> the likeness when we get there. Yes. Yep. Um, so they enter into this kind of space. They're in on like a grassy plain. There are bison. You're somewhere in the Midwest. Um, and Jesse takes some time to kind of figure out, as we were talking about before, like figure out what how he wants to be in this experience too. Um, and so he has the the loincloth and the long black hair and the rock hard abs and it's very romance novel cover-esque. Um, and then he's waiting for this I was client. Gonna say, I thought he tones it down a little bit and goes with like leather pants or whatever he, instead he, of a loincloth and then like does the moccasins. As soon as he gets he does a once he gets his client. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. that's right. Um, and so actually that does seem like a little him. bit, yeah, it's a moment just for him. Like, no, but there, he's supposed to be in there. I, I presume it's like understood that there will be a request, um, but there hasn't really been one pop up yet. And so he's kind of in there doing the, making these modifications just for sort of like his enjoyment and his experience and his pleasure. Oh, I guess I read it as like his expectation of like who the client was going to be rather than like what he wanted Maybe his expectation of who he hoped the client would be. Sure. Yeah, I don't, I will, I, I, and I'm not sure that's a good distinction to make, and I'm not sure what the distinction is, um, but I will say that one of my favorite lines um, of the entire short story is in exactly this section, and it is while he is, before the request from the tourist comes in, um, and the line is, you raise your chin and try out your best stoic look on a passing prairie dog. <laughs> He's so happy. <laughs> Well, he has this pri- this private moment, whatever you want to say it is, before uh, his world is disturbed as a little screen pops up in front of him and describes the experience that it wants it to be. And while it is tailored to a certain degree, it's pretty generic in terms of what the changers are, mm-hmm. of where it's experience type, vision quest, tribe, plains Indian, doesn't really matter who, favorite animal, wolf. So there is a certain le- level of tailoring he has to quickly adjust to, but it isn't much. This is very much a pretty packaged experience with just a few changes to the visuals to make it seem authentic. But his particular uh, tourist shows up, and one of the first things that strikes me about this tourist is where, with how built up he is, with how much he in no way resembles his actual self, with how much it is very much his idealized form, the tourist shows up and looks like a tourist. There is no tailoring, there is no modification of the experience to fit some kind of element of wish fulfillment. It is just a relatively sloppy looking guy. Yeah, which, with scrawny white legs, mm-hmm. which, which caught me off guard at first. I think and I don't, they didn't say right. They didn't say at this moment that, that was in any way weird. But I think he later on remarks that it was a little bit odd that the guy didn't make some effort to change himself at least a little bit before going into the vision. Yeah, I guess I sort of assumed that that was like the he's still in like a Hawaiian shirt, uh, cargo shorts, and like <laughs> uh, you know white socks that are pulled up halfway up his calf. Mm-hmm. Birkenstocks, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, those kind of like 
make changes as opposed to like significant changes to like what he actually looks like mm-hmm. um but that was just sort of my like impression and sense of uh what was going on there and that was sort of described a different sort of character uh than he's used to because it does take him a little bit off guard and he's a little bit surprised at like the person that shows up mm-hmm. and he seems to he seems to immediately start to emphasize with the person with um to a certain degree of where one of the first things that strikes him is that the guy just looks sad lost like he's actually come here to an experience an effort to find himself which isn't that unusual but it is something that immediately starts to connect him to him but in falling into his usual role, he just starts giving the guy what is his very traditional experience of where he just starts, you know, raising a hand and saying how, as the, drawing back to 1950s-style Indians. And like the tourist, I'm already starting to roll my eyes at what apparently this experience is like. <laughs> yeah. And so he sort of, like, responds, I think, in the same, like, how, and, it was, and then it's kind of like a, oh, well, I kind of thought it would be a different experience sorry to bother you bye like really yeah. really quickly um yeah unsettlingly quickly certainly to jesse but also i think t- kind of to us as readers right like this that immediate i mean you have spent a lot of money to come on this experience you have decided yeah. to come on this experience and within like 15 seconds you've decided you know what this isn't for me like that that is weird and unsettling to me as a reader just as it is um for jesse in the moment yeah, and I think that also sort of plays into the you're expecting something impressive. Mm-hmm. You're expecting something that is important, I guess, at this point in the story. Like, what's this VR experience going to be like? What's his job? Like, what's going on here? This, you're, I feel like I was expecting a more of a, um insertion into the world. And it, you start getting that and like what Jesse does to prepare. And then uh, this character who, you know, will eventually get the name White Wolf basically goes, eh, I, I guess this wasn't really what I was looking for. I guess I'm not really impressed. Um, thanks, but I'm going to head out. Yeah, it should, should be one of our first hints that this story really isn't going to be about Jesse experiencing the simulation in this particular way that it this is one of only i think two moments that we have where he's actually doing his job mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. um this one and then the next one of where white wolf returns and it's even briefer than before and even with less of an effort to main to do the authentic indian experience yeah we notably so. never get any real sense of like what that looks like i mean clearly we can extrapolate from the cultural touchstones that they are clearly modeling it off, off of but we never in this story get any real description or sense of what the experience is which, yeah. which, um, we have which is, inferences but right. little else yeah which is as much as i might have hurt myself from rolling my eyes through it i kind of wanted to see i, I was kind of curious what kind of really weird compilation they were going to do of all the classic indian tropes to see what that would be like but <laughs> as said having seen all the movies that are on this list i guess i can kind of distill it in my mind <laughs> um i guess and so the other side of that this is he does talk a little bit about like how much they have to pay for this experience mm-hmm. yeah it's not um, cheap it's once in a lifetime according to right and so i guess the other you know quick thing that i feel like this might be as good a place as any to discuss is like how much do you think this is and like is the 
pod itself super expensive? Like, what's going on that this business model seems completely weird? This is also taking place in... What what small Arizona town was this again? It's was in, it Scottsdale? It's in Sedona, I think. Sedona. Is it Sedona? It's up at the top. Yeah, Spencer's going to look at his uh Sedona, almanac. you got it. Um, it's Sedona, which is a town of like 11,000 people. It's a tiny town. Is that is that what we're led to believe? Well, this is... But Sedona is mm-hmm. also an expensive tourist town mm-hmm. like it is an expensive like so right i mean right now it is an expensive spa town and so yeah. why is not that just building off of that kind of infrastructure and economy so at, at where i just like legit just was in uh right near yellowstone is jackson hole yes and it's super expensive middle of nowhere and super, super expensive <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. super expensive and if you want to see like you know, essentially the equivalent of all of our parents, like mm-hmm. in the same spot and going out to brunch. Mm-hmm. That's like the best yeah. place to see like the 50, 60, 70 year olds, white parents, essentially, you know, middle, middle to middle, upper to upper class, you know, going about their thing, mm-hmm. you know, buying jewelry and going out to dinner. That's like the place to do. I mean, it's rich people who want to be outside and be I think significantly like quote unquote authentic, right? It's rich hippies. Yeah. It's rich hippies who are doing their thing. Yeah, lo- looking it up, it is a 92% white community where the average medium family income is $53,000, which is well above average. Yeah. So, yep, it is. Yep, it is that. Um, so, it, yeah, it's taking place in the middle. In, where is Sedona? I don't actually have a view on the map. I. I do have the almanac on my bookshelf. I can go get it if you want, want me to, BJ. Um, so you guys already I know. know where it is. Like I, well, I literally have it up on maps, but it that's not super helpful. But it's uh, like, it's like 50, the dead middle Arizona, isn't it? Fifty to eighty miles south of the Grand Canyon National Park. Okay. So yeah, it, it's sort of the it's you know a hundred miles north of Phoenix. It's kind of middle of nowhere, yeah, which is why people go to, there. Right reason that we're talking about this is immediately after this experience fails he transitions to a bar in Sedona but in terms of going into the failure yeah. there is a key moment to reference here yes. for no other purpose to tie back to your drink so thank you yeah so so basically you know his failure sets in and his tourist is kind of like yeah I'm done no thank you and um Jesse tries to pull him back in and wait that, I can I can give you an Indian name yes and the way that he usually does this is giving him an Indian name and so then he starts referencing his like being this guy being super white and having long legs and it's like well what about like white stork well <laughs> you know that's probably not a great Indian mm-mm, name mm-mm, like it needs mm-mm. to be something good maybe white raven well maybe not a bird and then I think he'd even talked about it earlier when he was first starting the, you know, preparing himself for the experience that he used to use kind of like a random name generator to give the, have the names pre-prepared based on like your street address and an animal. Yes. Yep. Um, but he apparently moved away from that because it started getting repeats. And he liked giving them unique names. Well, because yes. you yeah. didn't know if his client, he didn't know if his clients were going to compare notes. Yeah. Uh, so he does, you know, make an effort to tailor this, but he's working off visuals that are not giving him much. He... Thinks about doing, you know, what was the original one? You said like white stork or something? Um, I think so, yeah. Moves on to, moves on to like pale crow, which again, not not working not working the uh, tourist very well there. Before remembering, wait, wolf, favorite animal, he's white. White wolf! Which for a second brings the tourist back in. And very much only a second before he just goes, 
okay, thanks for that, bye. And the experience ends. And he is left with another failure on his plate when he's already still riding off, another, riding off his prior fail idea. So I have a quick question here. Um, if you were to, you know, give somebody very random Indian names, and you've been doing this for a little while, do you really think that White Wolf wouldn't have come up before? I think it would have come up if for another reason that I played The Witcher 3 recently, but um, yeah, it seems a bit generic. He seem, well, it also seems like, again, they, he would be a little bit more prepped going into this with just some fallback names to go with that anybody would accept. But uh, So, yeah, so a couple que- another question here that I'd like you both to answer, and then we'll readdress this question. How many times do you think he's done this experience? Uh, oh. Tourist or our, our character? Our character, and we'll come back to this at the end of the book as well. Uh, did he say at one point he's been doing this for like a few years? I think so, because he did like a year at Arizona State, mm-hmm. and yeah. that didn't work out. And then I think he did like a couple of odd jobs in between then, although I might be projecting that. Um, it, that's where his age again is weird. Yeah. Until, until it said that he was in his 40s, I was really thinking he was going to be a millennial based on the description. But that could, again, just be me putting my own experience into it. Of where they talk about him being out of college, they talk about him doing a few odd jobs, and then he found this. But apparently there's a much larger gap there of odd jobs based on his age, or unless he went to college a lot older than a lot of people do. And, but, you know, there's also a possibility that, like, he's been doing this for, like, ten years. He could well have been doing this a while. I mean, it does talk about him being, like, one of the best salesmen for yes. some amount of time, but... Probably not that recently. No, given I don't think how it was tenuous. His job is. I don't think it was recently. It seems like his sort of performance and his ideas and have all fallen off. Um, mm-hmm. He's not high up in this company. I mean, he is just a very much a. He is one of many drones that are in a similar position to him, with seemingly only one major boss described over it. Um, yeah, pulling up years, he really doesn't really say. It's just that you know, he, he spent a year at Arizona State, did some odd jobs. He was unemployed for the year before last when she almost left you, referring to his wife. But that's kind of all we got in terms of his background. Yeah. I, I think the, the other thing that this conjures to my mind is that it's kind of like a car salesman. Where this Go on. W- well, this would be an, an impressive purchase mm-hmm. for whomever it is. Um, but the actual person being the salesman... A, isn't probably making all of that much money, mm-hmm. and B, like, you know, might have been the salesman of the year for, like, five years running, but, you know, in the past three months hasn't had any particularly good sales and is about to be, you know, tossed out if he doesn't get some good sales soon. Well, and let's sure. also, you know, I think that's a really apt comparison, BJ, because, like, the stereotype of the car salesman is that, like, he was probably, like, the high school football star and, like, had mm-hmm. a couple of successful years ish and then sort of flamed out and now he's relying on his own cultural capital to make his way um through this sort of job right yeah the, now we're now we're going into the authentic 1950s job experience in terms of that i mean or pretty much anybody doing commercials in north carolina for uh, an auto true mm-hmm. pretty much you know, mm-hmm. a lot of post athletes there yep so after but, this experience fails um, we cut to Jesse going into the Hey USA bar, which is the only Indian bar in Sedona, um, which I think is also telling given given our previous um, sort of conversation about Sedona. 
Um, 0.4% of the population is Native American. So, yeah, I can believe there's only one bar in a town of 10,000. Yeah. Um, And also, like, really in... Sedona is in Arizona, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, really in Arizona, your town is only 0.4% Native American. Like, you have engineered it that way. Um, So, um, he is in this... He is in this bar and, like, pretty depressed. Um... Or at least put out for the day, let's say. I love his description there of where he's been coming to this bar for literally years. Um, And yet the bartender does not know him, does not remember his order, despite the fact it's always the same thing, and doesn't make any effort to to talk with him. That he has a a half-second conversation with Darianne where she basically just grills him again on, okay, the boss isn't here, what do you actually think? And he just kind of sighs and says, I really need this job. And then she sits down next to him and they start to have a conversation... And then she just walks off, and he's again just alone there at the bar. We really get an insight into this guy of where he does not have much in the way of a support network or friends or really anything other than a element of home life, which is clearly not very warm, and this job. That's really all we get on him, and it doesn't seem like there's much else. Yeah, no, I mean, he's a very... When we encounter him first, and in this moment, he is a very lonely, um, very lonely person in the world. And so Darian has left him. He's still sitting in the bar and he is sitting under that bright neon Indian chief sign <laughs> that's quote squats atop Sedona sweats. Um, and suddenly somebody else walks into the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody that he doesn't recognize at first. And then he realizes is white wolf, which I immediately started eating stranger danger warnings when uh, <laughs> we started, started mixing the Indian experience with real life, mm-hmm. which proved more apt than I realized by the end of this book. Uh, But he's, at first at least, more just surprised than concerned that this guy has somehow found him out. Even when the guy describes, in some level of detail, how he hunted him down for the purpose of finding him. Mm -hmm. Um, And... How would you best describe what this guy's looking to... What what is White Wolf... What does White Wolf come to him for? Well... Uh, okay. What does he represent he's come to him for, at least right now? <laughs> Just sort of to talk? Yeah, it seems like a continuation of the fact that I'm lonely, you're lonely, let's talk for a bit. Well, That's really all I really came into this for. Yeah, and it, the, the sort of like reason for I want to talk to you gets fleshed out a little bit in this sort of like, he's claiming great-grandmother Cherokee blood, um, which Jesse is sort of like, oh, okay. Um, I've heard mm-hmm. this 174,000 times before. Um, but, you know, <laughs> White Wolf was kind of like spinning this narrative to get Jesse to talk to him of a sort of like ancestral memory and all of that. And Jesse is like just lonely enough and just drunk enough and just disappointed enough in the day to say, okay, let's, let's have a talk. I mean, he kind of shrugs it off. He's probably heard this a lot before, given the nature of his job. Mm-hmm. He's probably heard a lot of people talking about, oh, this is so much matching my own cultural background that I'm one sixteenth something or something. But he's pretty polite about it. He just kind of shrugs and thinks, okay, well, I've never met a Cherokee. Maybe this is how that experience goes. Okay, maybe he's Cherokee. Let's go with it. Yeah, as you said, this this is two lonely guys meeting that just want somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. And so they talk. Well, actually, this first time they don't really talk much at all. They just kind of say, okay, uh, nice to meet you. Nice to see you. See you around. And then he's back in the pod the next day and suddenly White Wolf has returned. Yeah, and I feel like this 
interaction's a little bit weirder because it's kind of yeah. like a hey, I wanted to talk to you again. Like we don't need to have an experience. I just sort of like wanted to get to know you a little bit better. And um, now that Spencer, you've described this a little bit more, I have another uh, thing that might also is kind of. Uh, similar in in my mind and it probably shouldn't be but I will blame this on uh, Sarah your husband and I spent a (laughs) lot of time uh, watching Deadwood recently but Uh kind of like a a whorehouse experience where some things are expected in the experience and when it doesn't go that way that's almost more jarring than going that way I guess Um, And so the, well, I don't really want this authentic experience. And then the the person just like, all right, well, then what do you want? And why am I here? Um, And if you don't like go through with this, my boss is going to be pissed at me. That sort of whole interaction sort of reminded me of of some of those um, dens of ill repute, shall we say, in Deadwood. (laughs) I mean, Mm. I think that's totally fair. I think it gets back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about the kind of like the 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 gendered narrative of being native american um yeah. in contemporary america right like there are there are scripts and roles that you play and they all have this tinge of exploitation at least at the very least yeah mm-hmm. um and so like it's even weirder that this guy has come back a second time and jesse again offers the vision quest kind of thing and it's just like hey like let's go through with the act that you've paid me for mm-hmm. um and I'm an, I'm an actor here let me act let me do my job but right. i'm an artist what... <laughs> <laughs> let me do my craft i'm well trained i went to arizona state not to do this but i'm here now um yeah and and it's kind of like a well i mean if you have to but that's not what i'm here for um and yeah. i just he's sort of re- like want to talk to you and he's really not here to take no for an answer of where he basically just tells him i've got money i'll just keep coming back until you give me what i want mm-hmm. yeah and let's sort of when, when do you get off uh and we'll hang out then mm-hmm. um and again this is sort of like a if the genders had been slightly different this would have been a very different book um but jesse's all too happy to say yeah okay uh sure i you know, go to the Hey USA on a regular basis. Like, we'll hang out and have fun. Mm-hmm. And they do. And that was weird. And they start and, this yeah. this regular habit of meeting at the Hey USA, which is a little weird because, like, tourists are not, like, normally from Sedona. And so why is White Wolf continually... I mean, this happens over, like, several weeks, where a couple right. of times and a week they a start meeting. Yeah. And it also is sort of like this weird interaction with his wife, where yes. it's just like, oh, no, like, I'm not getting super shit faced, but I'm hanging out with this really cool, super white dude. Mm-hmm. Except he keeps get he's getting a little less white on yeah. each of their <laughs> meetings. <laughs> yeah. He, he, does he have like a little bit of tinge in his skin now? Yeah. He doesn't look quite as white. Well, you that know, happens like sometimes with this one, these 164th guys, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Is it the light? I don't know. Yes. One thing that's interesting you you, you referenced there, I found it interesting that he really does keep this relationship from his wife. Yes. He doesn't seem to tell her anything about it. The only thing he really explains to her is when later on he gets sick that he needs her basically to 
that's a really weird conversation. I need you to kind of cover for me with a client? It, th this is a weird secret kind of relationship that he's keeping from her, mm -hmm. which doesn't seem like it needs to be unless he views it in a different light than it is just two friends meeting at a bar. Well, but I, I think on the first night, he's, she's just like, oh, why are you out so late? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just like some tourists and like we're hanging out. Like you mm -hmm. have nothing. I'm not stepping out on you. So you don't have to worry about any infidelity or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But later on when he gets sick, he has to think about, I can't tell her what's really going on, but I'll just tell her to go there and cover. It definitely seems like he's not fully explaining this or at least just just doesn't talk with her much about what's going on oh absolutely yeah. not yeah and so he this goes on for several weeks i guess oh, wow. right at least weeks and yeah. um then he eventually gets sick um and he calls into work calls in sick to work a couple of times and is like literally on his back for a while and um, eventually what gets him really worried is not that he is miss missing so much work, but that he is missing multiple of these meetings with White Wolf at the bar. And so that is yeah. what eventually, as we've, we've been kind of talking about, prompts him to finally say to his wife, listen, I need you to go and here's what this guy looks like and find him and tell him what's going on. Yeah, um, and it's like Tuesday, Fridays, or yeah, something, something like that. Like it's that. not like every day, and so it's clearly over a long period of time that they're doing this, that it's a thing. Yeah. Though, though it's a weird thing, because have you ever met with somebody more than like two or three times and not had their phone number? Well, he doesn't even know uh, White Wolf's name. No, not that we ever hear. He just meets with a guy at a bar and calls him White Wolf for yeah. weeks. Well, and he, said, he says having. when he starts sending his wife there, he's like, shit, I don't actually know what his name is. I don't have his yeah. number. Yeah. I don't know where he lives. I don't know how he's a tourist living in Sedona for several weeks. Just work with what I have, woman. And so she goes, um, and then <clears throat> it turns out that, like, she's there talking to him for, like, four hours. Uh, which really freaks Jesse out. Yeah. Is that a, a rosy flush in her cheeks? The scent of cherry coke on her breath? Yeah, I think uh, this it, is sort of like the beginning of the end, the uh, downfall of, uh, of Jesse very, Turnblatt. Very quickly. Very quickly. Because, you know, she, she returns home and she's all effervescent and has a little smile on her face that he's never seen before on her. And just comments, oh, oh, a nice man, real nice. You didn't tell me it was Cherokee. Your breathy he... effervescence <laughs> makes me, like, shiver inside. That's what I'm here for, BJ. Um, but he goes into work the next day, uh, only to find there's a note on his locker, never a good sign, needs to go talk to the boss, and who pretty much probably says, hired a new guy, uh, he's real good. Uh, I mean, his name's Wolf. Gotta be authentic with that, right? Yep. Um, and give him your pod. Sorry, bye. Yeah. And he pretty quickly loses his career. And notably, he has an emotional reaction to this in the sense that he raises his voice slightly and <laughs> is thrown out by security. Yeah, uh, and then immediately goes to the Hey USA yeah. and starts doing shots. Which I thought yeah. the, the description of him going to the Hey USA at this point was so, like, spot on because, like, he only ever goes there after his shift, which ends at, like, 11. And so he gets there at, like, 11.30. Well, this is the middle of the day. And he walks in, and he's like, well, these are different people than I normally encounter yeah. here. These are, like, real drinkers. Different crowd. Yeah. Um, but he falls in with them pretty quickly. Yeah. It's also it's also authentic that he just... The reason he's going there, as you said, because it's where he goes after his shift. It's also because he can't go home. Yeah. That he has built a lot into, I've got a job. 
I need to keep this job because she almost left me when I didn't have one last time. I can't tell her. Not yet. Not not yet, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have pe- to figure something out or do something beforehand or whatever. And so his thing, given it's the only other thing that he has, is I'm going to go get drunk at the bar. Yeah. And he does. Apparently, all damn day. To the point that when evening starts to come around, Daran and somebody that he does not phys- phys- visually recognize walk into the bar. Yes, a, a larger and, and younger man who, uh, you know, is fairly attractive and she's leaning on his arm and giggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and who has a ribbon shirt and a bone choker and tanner skin and the voice of White Wolf. Yes, and and he says he sort of says hey, and and to Daran, and and White Wolf says hey, dude, back off! Like, what what are you try? Why are you trying to talk to this lady? Yeah, and n- noteworthy that neither appear to recognize him at all, despite it being a day since they last saw each other. Um. And he seemingly... Are they suggesting they, he, threw, he threw a punch? Yeah, don't they get into, like, a fight? Like, he grabs White Wolf's arm, and White Wolf just, like, does something. Lays and gets, him like, out. Knocked, knocked back. Yeah, something uh, like that. And he wakes up, essentially, in a puddle in the gutter. Um, li- walking through a variety of drunk stereotypes that he was just ashamed to even be in. Yeah, like, terrible breath, like, barefoot, because he somehow lost his shoes, and, you know, just... The whole nine yards, and I guess I sort of appreciate that, you know, it's just like the author uses the stereotype and then quickly moves on, because I feel like any description here would have just been like, okay, you're describing a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And so he sits there, humiliated together, having, you know, it being described that darkness come, came to claim him and the lights all flickered out. This is his last memory before what, where he is now. Um, so he's sitting there, injured, alone, barely sobering up realizing that only place he has to go is home. That yep. There's nothing else he can do but confront them. And he, having no other alternative, because his car is now even been towed, can't find it, is to, in torn, bloody clothes, covered in dirt and water and everything else, has to walk the long distance back to his bit, his highly mortgaged three-bedroom ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and, opens the door. Yep and finds that uh, he has walked into a very different life than that which he left. And he calls after his wife, and she doesn't answer. No. And there's a note and a person waiting for him at the kitchen table. Now, did... I don't remember if it's described, but is this the white wolf that he was seeing, you know... Closer is this to. The to. Is this the tourist white wolf or the new version of white wolf that he saw at the bar that's here waiting for? I thought it was the new version, but now I'm not sure yeah. if they really described it. Described him. I don't, I don't think they do. I think, I that, think they, I think that they say it's. I think that it's implied it's the new white wolf. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it, you know, they reference that night in the bar, and he's right. just like, "Well, why didn't you say you knew me? Like we're friends." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it I, also I think has it that fits... kind of like. Sorry, Spencer. It also has that kind of like different, um, different tone and different heft and different feeling, just as in the conversation they're having. Right. Yeah. And, and given the given the cultural appropriation theme that we're going with throughout this book, I think it works better if it's you know the new version of White Wolf that's in his home taking his life from him right now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's got the letter, which apparently says that uh, Teresa has left to go with her family for reasons Visit that are really described. Visit her mom alone. Yeah. yeah. For a couple days, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> for an indeterminable amount of time. And that she is aiming to leave our main character and go with White Wolf instead. 
Um, and where do we go from here? It kind of just ends from here as we realize that his entire life has now been taken from him. And it, the idea is broached that what he's experiencing right now may be less his life than White Wolf's. Yeah, and it's a how could you do this to me? Like, I, you know, walked you through all of my experiences. I told you all about myself. And now you're, like, using that information to take over. You took over my pod. And now, like, my my wife is leaving. And you're telling me that I have to leave my house? Like, wh- why you're taking this out from under me? And also, you look and seem like the kind of quote-unquote authentic Indian that I never really felt myself to be, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You, you- you look, you look like even my idealized version of what I wanted yes. to be. And yeah, but he talks about how he's taking everything from him. He offers the thought that, uh, did you ever think that maybe this was my experience and you're the tourist here? Uh, he defends himself, this is my house, not anymore. And then it ends with nausea rolls over you, the same stretching sensation you get when you relocate out of an experience, whiplash, and then you let go. And then it ends. Where? The Foley work, I feel like, comes into even more play because you get the... Locking out noises. Yes. <laughs> the potted exit noise. And... Yeah. I'll, I'll offer it again. This is not just LeVar Burton, you know, reading to you. This is LeVar Burton giving you a full-on experience. Um, and it is it was quite an impressive effort that he put into this. I, I had not heard the phrase Foley work before, but now I know what it is, and now I've got a baseline for quality. So this is... Like a very short story ending here, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's dumb. It sort of reminds me of like the lottery and and yeah, other it's short stories. It's a, where it's a very classical, yeah. It's a very classical kind of short story ending where you are sort of. I I mean, I guess you could call this a slice of life, sort of. Although there's a lot more going on here, but like the way it ends mm-hmm. is a kind of slice of life, right? Like there's clearly something yeah. that is happening after this that we are not privy to. Um, mm-hmm. Well, when you say that there's something happening after this, what do you mean? Well, that's the question. That we shall okay. debate now. Yeah. No, that, that, <laughs> that is the question. Like, something has to happen after this. But, like, what, what that is depends on what we believe the truth of who is living their real life and who is having an authentic experience. I mean, what I am here. I, is. I, I feel like it's fairly clear that, you know, he paid his two quarters and his game's over. Mm-hmm. That the you throughout this story is us, the reader, having paid for an authentic Indian experience, essentially. Yeah, and we we got that in its own in its own sense. Sure. I, I mean, I, I, honestly, I think that was the intent of the author. I, I maybe I should have read more into it, and maybe no, in your investigations and studies and such, Sarah, that you have a different perspective. But mine was he paid for his experience, and I also kind of feel like. The experience started around when we started the book, rather than he was in the experience a lot longer. You're talking about Jesse. Sure. Or the dude that's playing the Jesse experience. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Jesse only came into being, it came into existence on page one, line one of this book when you assumed his role. Yeah, I guess that was my reading. And, and, And so that was my question of... You know, did essentially he step in with some information into this experience in running these authentic Indian experiences for other people? Or has he been in this simulation long enough that 
he's actually gone through a couple of these or is this more like uh less of vr like do whatever you want experience and more like an on the rails like you're gonna play this character experience well if it's essentially if we're getting a version of the experience that they were described as being a version of the experience that's described within the experience it's pretty on the rails it is We'll offer a little bit of custom tailoring based on your selections, but otherwise there is a story to be told and we're going to give it to you. Yeah, but sorry, sorry Sarah. That, so On the Rails is a fairly specific video game uh, piece of terminology, <laughs> which basically go, means okay. like, <laughs> yeah, that, that you know, you have a story that you're going to play and the amount that you can change it is very minimal. So, okay, that that's fair. I would say that that is probably a term that is like at least intelligible as that in the non-video game world too. Yeah. I, I, I didn't think that you actually needed the uh, piece of information that you were missing. <laughs> no, it's but helpful. I it is helpful. <laughs> I should tell you why we're using it and like this specific term Spencer... as opposed to right. other like, I don't know, I have other terms that I would use, but I get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's helpful. Yeah. Are we all on the same page of essentially that's the structure of the story? I mean, Sarah, what's your view on it? I mean, I think that, um, I certainly think that that is the, I think that is the structure of the story. I think that there are unknowns about, about what the situation is beyond the experience that we are kind of in here. Um, and Mm -hmm. to what extent we want to talk about what function the second person you is playing here. Um, because that that adds that in the open, yeah, different levels. Um, to where we kind of are on who this character is and who is getting the authentic experience and what that means. Yeah, now's the time for that and I think also to address the opening quote because they both are seemingly going to explaining a bit of what this is and why it is. Yeah, and I guess I would say that I think that this is sort of a more quote-unquote authentic experience as to what life is, what more modern life is like. That it's not you know, roaming out on the plains and hunting buffalo. And that was a thing that may have happened up until sort of white people showed up. But now that reservations and alcoholism and the economic situations in a lot of reservation land sort of apart from sort of the lucky, and I would put lucky in like really heavy quotes having like, gambling establishments on Native American land, I feel like that's a more authentic experience of being exposed to tourists, having to deal with them, and having a just sort of very sad kind of mundane life that's very much catering to what people want out of your culture. It's, uh, to offer a personal experience here, um, down in uh, South Florida at the Seminole Hard Rock, owned by the Seminole Nation, they, for a couple of years there, I think they may still be doing it, host the National Native American Dance Competition, of where tribes from around the country cluster together to do traditional dances. And it's very much meant to be, this is for us. Tourists can come and watch if they want, but we're judging this. We're doing this for ourselves. You can kind of sit in the crowd if you want to. And Bridget and I were at the casino just on a lark and noticed this was going on, so we decided to go into it and just watch. And it was very different than what we were expecting. It didn't match a lot of what the traditional ideas of Native American dances or visuals, we ever, whatever else we had. And about halfway through, seemingly to speak to people like Bridget and I, a host came on and just said, well, I hope you're all enjoying this. Uh, to those who haven't seen this before, 
Uh, if this is in any way surprising to you in terms of what you're seeing, we just want to remind you, Native American culture didn't end in 1875. It has continued to evolve. These dances, traditional though they are, have continued to evolve because our culture has. You're seeing what is a living, breathing culture in action, and we hope you enjoy it. And that was a real... It was not just a thought I'd ever really had before. I didn't realize how much I had stereotyped my view of Native American culture so as to think that it had not changed in, in 150 years. That it would have natural evolutions that draw influences and express itself in ways that are uh, still ongoing. And so that was interesting to see played out. And, you know, in some ways this is a commentary on that too, of where most of our views of Native American culture are very static. They are very much what they were rather than pondering to any degree what they are now. What is their state in the world and how they are going about their lives. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for the non sequitur. No, no, I think that's that's really interesting. And I think that this story um, is getting to that as well because we get what is interesting in this story is that we get sort of two moments, two two different moments and two different types of stasis, right? We get the idea that these authentic experiences that are being sold within the story are the sort of static understanding of what Native Americanness is, right? Um, but then we also have, I mean, the story itself and where we are, even though we're in a sort of slightly um, distant future, the world in which we inhabit in the kind of narration of the of this story also feels very static um, and also feels very much like it has been caught up in dominant cultural narratives of what Native American heritage is or what Native American life is, right? Um, That play into exactly what you were talking about, BJ, these sort of like, this is what probably a Native American experience is in a more modern day. But those are also kind of narratives and stereotypes that we fall into, right? Without kind of thinking outside of, okay, well, what are the possibilities, right? Of a dynamic changing evolving, modernizing, keeping the tradition, culture that you um, were kind of experiencing in that story too, right, Spencer? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that even when they're describing what is the modern Native American experience, the structure of it, I'm curious whether you guys whether you guys thought of this, it seemed to very much be following the same structure of the original conquering of the plains, um, eradication and, uh, and um, forced submission of the Native American tribes of where there's an initial contact with the white man. It's starting out curious to a certain degree. He's laid low by disease, which causes him to lose his power and his position and his job and his work, everything else. The white man comes in and quite literally takes his work, takes his land, his property, uh, takes his wife, whatever else, and then forces him out alone into the world as appropriate everything it is. It, the structure of this seems to be mirroring a lot of the, a lot of the classical aspects of the original waves of the effects of manifest destiny upon the Native American tribes mm-hmm. is um, is that essentially is that essentially a commentary on how those forces are still in effect in the modern world in different means in different ways, or is it suggesting that even this native this more authentic Native American experience is still hitting the high notes of the past that we're all familiar with? So I guess that I, I had a question that I was going to ask before you went into this, but I feel like it's even more relevant now. Mm-hmm. What do you think is outside the pod? Uh, in in. Okay. What, what do you think is outside the pod? Like when the story ends or before the story begins? So outside like, of the bounds is, of the story. Uh, me sure. wherever this pod was. Okay, but but like, what do you think that the the culture is like? Are you get is the experience with White Wolf 
is white wolf native american is he some program is is mm. he you know who is white wolf and and what is he representing because you know he morphs into some other thing but is that just a you know essentially hoisting you on your own petard like you thought you were getting like something else and and you were giving an indian experience but this is a real indian experience and i'm an indian and i'm telling you so or is it just like a you're being supplanted and uh you're you know that you're jesse thornblatt or whatever like you're not really indian and you know maybe this guy isn't is just as indian as you are and that's what it's showing i mean i feel like there are loads of possibilities that that it could be and i i feel like i saw him as more allegory than real okay i mean i, I saw him as just being an allegory for the ideas of a set of supplanting and cultural appropriation i didn't see him as being a tour guide a real person in the same way as the story was structuring it to be yeah. I, I saw this authentic experience in the light of the author Ms. rebecca roanhorse has given me an authentic indian experience rather than i saw it as um the actual parameters and structure by how it would work so I, I have a hard time imagining it in that light in terms of what would be the real world setting by which I would go into experience. Them. Yeah, I think I get what you mean by that last statement. Um, so I, I guess I didn't read all of that much into uh, the narrative of the story. But now that you talk about it, I mean, I see like I see that that could be a very much mirroring of what happened. Um, I, I guess, you know, it. I was more caught up in what I thought was going on at the time. And I would say like about halfway through, I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is Jesse's experience. And then like some things threw me a little bit. And then I'm like, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure this is Jesse's experience. Like, you know, this just doesn't quite feel right. And then at the end, I was like, oh, yes, it's Jesse's experience. <laughs> I was right. Um, and then I listened to it a second time with... Uh, my girlfriend and and so i just was like expectantly and every time we'd take a break because we were actually wandering denver and going um to a couple places in denver so we'd be walking for like 15 minutes half an hour or whatever and and listen to it for a little while and then go back and forth and i'd be like so what do you think is going on right now <laughs> you you were doing your own spirit guide yes who's <laughs> uh, your uh, spirit animal with you there <laughs> Yeah, um, it's. I think I focused a lot more on what the author was probably was possibly trying to say, what the various themes and motifs were, because I found those a lot more interesting than the story itself. Of where the story itself is pretty by the numbers. I felt like it. It came across like an okay episode of Black of a Black Mirror in terms of the subversive element that I was waiting for and saw coming once they started to hint at it. That was pretty, you know, paint-by-numbers kind of experience. Um, kind of mirroring what the authentic experience is that's being described here. The reasons for it and what the author was trying to convey through it, that I found very fascinating. This is one of those examples of a story of where up until the end, or even not even necessarily the end, but up until me considering it in retrospect, I didn't get much out of it. It was a interesting little short story. But looking back through it in retrospect, there was a surprising amount of meat and surprising amount of uh, thought that was put into what she was seemingly trying to say by this. Well, and that, I mean, that relies on, I, I would argue, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, but I would say that that sort of relies on the, 
the the history and idea of Indianness, right? Um, of the fact that this is like I I would imagine for for all of us that this is we are relatively less versed in any sort of Native American story, um, and the sort of the the history of colonization that we have been talking about, and the history of displacement, and the history of sort of like creating. D- postmodern flawed mirrors of what Native Americanness and Indianness actually are, like playing on all of those things by tapping into that, this story that you could have told without these very specific identity politics then becomes something else and something more. Yeah. And I, I think that because of that, it's a very current story. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. And, you know, I sort of hope that it, it won't hold as much weight as it does in 20, 30, 50 years. Yeah, wouldn't you love for this story to become outdated? (laughs) Yeah, and I would guess that it will in some ways. I don't know that it will in as much as, like, I would hope, but, I mean, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy from, you know, the 30s to 50s is sort of very clearly out of date in many ways, and so I would sort of hope that this again becomes out of date and becomes less intense of a story but it's still a pretty good story in and of itself well, what what do we ex- what aspect of the story are we expecting to become out of date i'm curious what you guys mean by that yeah well i don't I, what i would hope is that and i don't believe i don't believe that this is going to happen but you would hope that the sort of identity politics that make this story go um, would become out of date i don't think they will and i don't think that I don't think, BJ, that... I, and stories from, like, the 30s and 40s that deal with identity politics are probably not out of date in that mode. Okay. I mean, I would say that... Or maybe that they're not completely out of date, but they're getting to be more and more out of date. Um, and, I mean, we sort of talked about it with um, Melancholy Elephants, that the descriptor of a powerful woman is the her having power like a man would have power and that's very out of date and i feel like the it's it's out of date but it's still something where it, it's out of date in the sense that people are starting to maybe acknowledge it's out of date rather than it has necessarily been accepted as out of date yet but sure we're, yes, we're heading I, in, we're, I agree and we're, but that we're acknowledging it's a trope. in the 80s and and anyway so but i guess that's sort of what i'm saying is that like the the current stereotype of uh drinking mediocre beer at a bar on a regular basis as and that sort of like near a reservation as the stereotypical Indian experience is I guess what I'm talking about as a something that's very current you know access to healthcare and good jobs and and all of those things are just abominable in those areas and I you know can tell you both myself and my girlfriend both experienced that driving through Indian reservations very recently at how, you know, sort of rundown and decrepit many places are, and that being sort of the stereotype experience of a certain socioeconomic class of Native American, where I would say very clearly, Rebecca Roanhorse probably hasn't had that exact experience or maybe that's a childhood that she grew up with or something like that but given the fact that she's a nationally recognized writer and a lawyer 
that probably isn't anything like her day to day. I mean, I guess that's, I guess that might be true for Rebecca Roanhorse. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that her, well, and this is actually a, this opens up, opens up a whole different question in a lot of different ways, but like, I don't, I don't know that her particular experience, whether it matches up with some level of the, the experience of sort of quote unquote Native Americanness that this story deals with. I don't know that that is like particularly relevant in terms of whether the issues and ideas presented in the stories will continue to have weight or merit. Right. I I guess I'm not trying to say like they won't have weight or merit, but they're currently prescient. Right. And I feel like in the future, they, it hopefully will be a slice of what it was rather than current and not pack the same punch and not have the same cultural touchstone that the story currently has. And I feel like why it's so impactful contrasting the idealized and stereotypical uh, quote-unquote authentic experience with a what I would say is a stereotypical and current quote-unquote authentic experience and how I would hope that's changing and I think that she might be saying that is a already changing and what I'm saying is I hope it's out of date not that it's gonna cease some of its relevance or that it is referencing a part of our culture and time period. Right. No, and that was exactly that was exactly the point I was making as well is that like yes, of course I hope that like what she is describing is out of date. Um I don't I don't know that the stereotypes will become out of date whether the situation becomes out of date anytime soon. Um and I don't know that the ramifications of those stereotypes will become out of date anytime soon and we can and and this happens with like I think, you know, we think about sci-fi, I think about like Kindred. Um or, you know, something else, Octavia Butler comes to mind. Um, but like, we would, ho- I would have hoped that we would have said these were written in the 70s, and they were kind of dealing with a black politics in America that God, I wish was out of date now. And like, they feel more prescient than ever. Um, yeah. And so that I, I agree with you in the hope that this will become out of date. I think I am looking at kind of other identity based science fiction, particularly that while we thought was out of date, perhaps for a brief shining moment in history, um, we are rapidly understanding is like actually more and more present than we than we ever would have realized. Um, and that is that's my concern. That's my concern. There's also some cultural commentary in this book, which I am inclined to believe will last for a lot longer period, just for any reason that cultural forces take a much longer uh, amount of time to change. But um, one of the things she's definitely commenting on here is an aspect of cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. in the sense that White Wolf takes from him all aspects of his life to repackage it in a way that is better marketing as the authentic Native experience. It takes the actual authentic Native life to absorb key aspects of it to make it more appealing to a more mainstream group, a very classic element of uh, cultural appropriation in action. and the effect that that has on individuals, and the effect that it, what effect it has on a society, and taking the what is actually unique and novel about it, and making it generic, making it enjoyed by the majority as a way of looking in and controlling in their own way. That is a, a cultural force which is very hard to shift, in large part because not only is American culture built on it, but the freaking English language is built on it. 
in terms of how it absorbs, how it takes, how it expands itself based on what little tidbits it wants to take from all around. Um, so she's clearly offering a certain commentary on that and what effect that has on the modern experience or any aspect of any experience. And I, that's a cultural force, which I don't know how and when that can change, just because of how fundamental that is to the modern Western experience, and particularly in the United States, and I said, the English language too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, like, I the part of that that is sort of most near and dear to my heart is food. And it's... I feel like there have been cycles, and we're currently in a very weird one, Um, and I think we're slowly coming out of the front of house needs to be a certain uh, culture look and whatever, and the back of house is pretty much all uh, Hispanic, Um, and then also the, I would say and i probably will would get some flack for it from a lot of people but the dilution of a lot of ethnic cuisines to be more palatable to whatever people sort of decide that the american palate is sort of comfortable with like you know orange chicken or uh enchiladas um and it's one of the interesting divides people get into when they talk about cultural appropriation because from a societal standpoint cultural appropriation can be viewed as a good thing mm-hmm. it's taking aspects of other cultures and incorporating them and improving the culture itself from that kind of diversity from that ability to ability to adapt and grow and improve over time from outside influences from the effect of a of a minority culture within that larger culture it is I can't even necessarily exclusionary. It's el- it's el- it's eliminating. It is the effect of you being uh, disappearing into the whole rather than maintaining the uh, aspect of individual identity on which you rely, which you depend. So it's cultural appropriation is one of those fascinating things to discuss because it is good and bad based on the individual experience of it. Uh, yeah. it is it's hard to put it into a box. Yeah, I, I think that I, I completely agree with your assessment, and I also find it sort of interesting because I feel like we're we have been progressing towards a culture that is accepting of some amount of uh, I am separate and my culture is separate, and if you want to incorporate some things from my culture, that's cool, and sort of general populace seems a little bit more accepting of like if you want to be a bit different that's fine but like i feel like the degree is just such a weird balance of like how different is it really is it okay to really be from your neighbor and how much of it are you willing to accept in terms of change and culture from your neighbor and and so like i i guess i have no idea of any good answer to that. But I feel like we're approaching a better happy medium than existed 50, 60 and beyond years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I don't I, I think we have made some progress and changes, but like I think happy medium is a little optimistic. Um, in my view, like it's something different. Like we have found. Yeah, something I guess different. that's why I'm saying um, approaching a happy medium, not like yeah, we're there. Well, yeah, and I, I I think that with a with like a lot of back steps and like I think it is it's becoming a sort of more open place for I won't use appropriation because we you know BJ you were talking about of course how fraught that can be and and all of that. Um, but like a, a borrowing melting pot. Yeah. 
Um, which, yeah, that that's fine and that's great. I think what it comes down to is really kind of purpose and intent in doing that borrowing and appropriation as well as to how that is accepted, how that is understood, um, but also kind of, you know, the the relative position of the culture from whom you are appropriating. And so I mentioned at, and I just wanted to mention this briefly, like, I don't know exactly, I didn't know where it was going to fit in, um, in this podcast, but I mentioned very briefly when we, when we all started listening to or thinking about this story, the fact that, um, Rebecca Roanhorse has been herself at the center of a little bit of controversy, um, about ideas of appropriation, um, and notably, that controversy controversy has only been among really indigenous circles. It has not hit the sort of white consuming audience um, who universally loves her books because we generally don't know the difference. Um, but she among... Um, so Rebecca Roanhorse is half African-American, um, but she's also a part of the, the Pueblo tribe. And one of her most recent novels, Trail of Lightning... Um, I have not read, but I've, you know, read a couple of synopses and reviews and kind of in these articles about this controversy is essentially taking um, the worldview and um, ideology of um, Navajo religious practices and both kind of taking them and putting aspects of them, putting aspects of that worldview out in the world that people from certainly traditional Navajo cultures would not, do not feel is for public consumption. Um, and also essentially creating a fantasy world out of that um, ideology structure, which is problematic also for a lot of um, people from Navajo tribes and nations. And so it is, it's interesting to me that this appropriation culture or appropriation conversation you know, we have been having, I think, quite rightly, and especially in the context of this of this story, um, been having in terms of sort of like a dominant American culture um, and a dominant white culture. But it is it is also something that happens all the time into different valences and in different places. Um, and the fact that it is hitting at a place that is entirely under the dominant culture's radar, um, but particularly also speaking to kind of the wants and needs and expectations of of a dominant American culture is complicated um, and interesting. And I don't necessarily know what to say about it, but I just wanted to kind of bring that up in this conversation because it is a conversation that is happening around this author and kind of around the same issues that we're talking about, but in a slightly different way. Yeah, I, I guess like I totally, I am empathetic and sympathetic. I guess the the best thing that I can personally relate that to is the complete like i i have no understanding or concept as to why this became a thing but um there are a bunch of uh celebrities that are like super into um kabbalistic practices yep and it's super super weird to me um and it's like you know a like mystic thought and mystic practices in judaism that like aren't really mainstream but are kind of like the uh 
it's usually talked about and and the circles that that i have talked about it that are not like what the fuck is going on with these celebrities is more of like a you know if you are heavily steeped in religious studies and you are interested in the religious mysticism of judaism like once you have learned like all of these other religious texts there are other things that people have talked about in terms of like religious meditations and things like that and if like your relig- uh, religiosity and spiritualness like puts you in that direction, then like there are these other things that you might be interested in. But that's sort of like a once you reach sort of like the inner circles of religious practices and want to go into the more mystical and spiritual like side of things, then that's open to you if you want. And then they're just these random people that get like weird tattoos and quote unquote practice Kabbalism. And it's kind of like, what on earth are you doing? Like this has so little to do with my cultural and religion. Like, you know, there are passages in the Bible that say you're not supposed to tattoo yourself. And then there's more of the like cultural uh, distaste of tattooing and then to tattoo like jewish religious symbols on yourself because you've decided that you practice this is just like i don't feel like it's an appropriation and again as you said sarah that's probably because of like my position in society and like where you know the Mm -hmm. people are positioned in society and so it's just like i look at it and i'm just like well that's weird and i don't get it more of than a just like why are you stealing from my culture (laughs) Um, but I also say, why are you stealing from my culture? Because like, there are much better things like, you know, good chicken soup. Um, but it's, it's really just a question of taste what you're right. Yeah. And, and so it's just the, there are so many things that are interesting and fascinating about various indigenous cultures and you know again you know i say you know near and dear to my heart but things like johnny cakes and stuff like that are a much more interesting thing to share of native culture than like a spirit quest because why would that be like any why would that be a a a culture cultural thing that i want to do because i have no connection to it yeah um it, it, it is I'm like you BJ I am looking at this from the position of the appropriator of where a lot of the concerns about culture appropriation come from cultures and peoples that feel like in many ways they're under siege of where the aspects by which they identify by which connect them as communities by which make them unique they feel are being taken and diluted and rendered no longer really theirs and each time that happens what's something that allows their culture to still exist in any way that is of its own, if any way that is just not part of the generic uh, majority, is forever lost. Um, from our perspective, it's broadening and improving our culture and giving us access in. I mean, if various writers weren't writing about these people, if there wasn't something that become mainstream and discussing aspects of these uh, various cultures out in the world, I would never know about them. I would never be improved from knowing that they exist and learning about them. But the inherent nature of our culture is to commoditize, is to render a commercially beneficial product in a way that if it continues indefinitely, if it continues to its natural course, then what actually made this unique, what actually made it fascinating will no longer exist. Will just be some roadside stands selling turquoise because that's what people expect it to be. So 
it's uh, it's a fraud concept. We're going to keep on returning that because there's no real answer here. It's every our culture is going to depend on drawing things from cultures everywhere, from taking them from modifying them from express from, from exp- now expressing them in various ways within our culture. That's how culture works. It happens on a macro scale and a micro scale. But if it can if it just continues on its inevitable course when there is one very dominant all-encompassing cannot escape culture that now exists, its natural effect is to take all of those and distill them to a point that they're no longer actually unique, no longer actually their own living, breathing culture. They're just individual little widgets that now can be offered. It's almost like they've become that? ghosts. There yep. we are. Thank you, Sarah. I was about to go back, back to, to the, the quote. Day. Yep. Let, let's discuss that quote a little bit because it, it is an interesting little. It is an interesting quote. Uh, I don't have it in front of me right now, Sarah. Do you I have it. Yeah, I've got it. it. Um, in the what you got? In the great American Indian novel, what? Excuse me. In the great American Indian novel, when it is finally written, all of the white people will be Indians, and all of the Indians will be ghosts. No. When I read that, I, again, I'm, this, is, this has been my recurring theme throughout all of this. I was thinking it was offering a certain degree of commentary on cultural appropriation. That the idea essentially is that in any exploration of Indian culture in that way, it would have already been so solely consumed by white, by white people that the only characters would be in it would be white people as Indians and the actual Indian culture would have long since ceased to exist. Um, what did you all get out of it? I, I would fairly much agree with you. Um, it sort of reminds me that like a lot of the iconic Indians of the of Hollywood are not the Iron Eyes Cody, who I think was Italian American. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and oh, what was it? Uh, Tonto. Yeah, from the Lone Ranger. Yeah. I w- oh God, that's the worst. Um, <laughs> I looked it up, and and it's giving me the uh, Johnny Depp version. <laughs> Well, that's the version um, that, I, that is referenced in the story, too. Yeah, that, that is true. So, anyway, but but yeah. Um, apparently, actually, the long-running uh, Lone Ranger TV show, it was Jay Sil- Silverheels, who actually is a Mohawk actor. So, uh, I guess I misreferenced uh, that one, but the more recent one very much is uh, not. Which proved... <laughs> Which proved very controversial at the time when that yeah. movie came out. Yeah. And so I think my initial reading of this quote was in line with yours, Spencer, although I'm I'm looking at it now, and I think I, that, that reading is still certainly primary. Um, well, you know, I'm thinking that if we take it kind of on, if we take it essentially on a less cultural appropriation level and actually on a more literal level that is simply dealing with the history of how um, American Indians have been treated by white people in this country. Let's say, okay, in the, in the great American Indian novel, when it is finally written, so it has clearly not been written at this point, all of the white people will be Indians and all of the Indians will be ghosts. Um, and so I think, you know, there is potentially a reading where... It's literal apocalyptic at that point. Well, it's literally... Apo- you could either go, it's literally apocalyptic, or in the American Indian retelling of history, the white people will be um, undercut. The dominant culture will be, will be American. Sorry, the dominant culture, the white people will be made um, submissive. And the Indians as ghosts are, are actually powerful um, because ghosts in, I mean, in every ghost story, like ghosts are powerful, right? Like they hold actual um, ways that's, of being that's in the world. So I think 
I don't think that that is the primary read. I don't think that's how we're meant to it, but I do think that those valences. Mm -hmm. well, and that, that could even tie into some of the uh, Native American beliefs that were coming about um, after the reservations had started to establish and after they were being fully conquered. Things like the ghost dance mm -hmm. of the various desperate last cultural efforts to find some degree of unity, to find some degree of resistance that ultimately, sadly, well, ultimately failed. But they were a rallying cry from the Native American people uh, to try to resist in one last way as the uh, tide had so fully turned against them. But it, I, I think any of those are potentially valid um, interpretations of the line. It's, it is a very effectively haunting quote. Uh, it has a lot of interesting thoughts, a lot of them very subversive and unpleasant. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting quote to pull out of, I mean, I have not, I have certainly not read how to write the great American Indian novel. And so I don't, I don't know what the context of this quote is. Um, and if we are meant to know what the context is or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, to right. <laughs> right. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, it is a long poem. Oh, okay. Yeah. It is a long poem, and that is the last uh, stanza of the poem. Yeah, I'm going to have to read this later. Actually, it looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, to return to another question that we had a little bit earlier, uh, we were discussing the concept of you and the author's use of it. We seem to have all accepted to some degree that the you of this is us, the reader, who is being inserted into this authentic Indian experience. Uh, through that lens, I agree with you, Sarah, that the you for me throughout much of this book did not really work very well. Mm -hmm. Of where if it was a you intended to put me in the mind of the main character, it was largely a failure. I never really felt close with him. I never really saw him. If it is the you that this story really ends on, though, of us essentially as a, uh, a voyeur, of us as the hanger-on that's watching through his eyes rather than him, it definitely works better. I'm curious what you guys think from how the story ends. Is that what the author intended with the you? I guess that was my assumption given the ending. Yeah, I, th I think it is. Um, I think it is. I do think... And I, I feel like that is the sort of like big reveal at the end is that the you was actually you um, throughout the story, which is uh, maybe we are conditioned from the fifth season to not really think of the you as you, um, but the you is like six different people and one of them is sort of you. But anyway, the, I think the you is supposed to actually be you in this story. Um, I do wish just from a stylistic point, and I don't know, I don't know how this would, this would work necessarily, but I don't. I wish that there was a little bit more to suggest that the you was actually you from the beginning, because the the implications of that you being you at a big reveal at the end lose the impact of your subject position kind of throughout the story. Um, and it relies on you to do a lot of intellectual labor to go back and kind of say, oh, what does it mean that at this point this was actually me and not Jesse as you? Um, and I just don't think... Like, I'm, I'm barely willing to do that. Um. But it also, like, it was not even an hour-long read out loud. Yeah. So I guess it's, had it been, like, the fifth season or any longer, I feel like it would have lost a lot more. But because it's so short, the I feel like the reveal, you know, had, had I read this on paper, yeah. you know, I feel like it would have been, like, maybe 20 Kindle pages. Yeah, um, so it's, it's, on font size. it's 5,800 words. I have it in front of me. Um, 
and I do I do think that it is probably a little bit a function of, of medium. It is impossible to go back if you were if you were listening to it, but you could you could do the physical labor as well as the intellectual labor if you were reading it on on paper and kind of um, flip back and kind of recreate some of those scenes in the in the alternate headspace. Yeah, but I feel like I, I think that the headspace at the end of like the sense of the experience you know, as even an audiobook or short story, the broad strokes of the experience are still there at the end. And then the you being you, you can go back and reevaluate those. But like, I think that the specific, I think that as it's written, and we can even go back and look at them specifically, but the generality is what matters, not the specifics, because the specifics are obviously... Uh, you know, or I guess obviously it's not the right word, but like the specifics are intentionally forgettable and unimportant. See, and I, I think that the specifics of what happened in the story are, are not important. I agree with you there, but the specifics, the specific moments in which our narrator is really sort of deep diving into what the stereotypes are, where they're coming from, Um, and all of that, like, I think that's, that for me is really important in terms of kind of wrestling with myself as the you in this story. Um, and listening to the story, I can't go back and revisit those. Mm -hmm. One, one thing you just tied into, and BJ, you mentioned this before as well, uh, in terms of depicting the real quote unquote authentic on Indian experience through us, the reader, uh, the author goes into modern stereotypes, if you will, about aspects of Indian culture as well. Uh, that is done intentionally, but I'm curious your use is what are we supposed to get out of that? Um, of where, I think you guys talked about at one point that the moment of him drunk in the gutter is pretty quickly breezed through due to some of the discomfort and the stereotype it represents, but it is very intentionally depicted as he goes on, as, as he ends up at that state before he returns home to have everything taken away from him. Um, in terms of using this modern stereotype, what is the author trying to say by that? That it is authentic? Or is it, in many ways, our view of even what is a, a current culture is always going to be couched in stereotypes that we I, can't I escape think, them to a certain way? Yeah, I think that very much it's couched in stereotypes. And I think that the, uh, you know, sort of car salesman, dead-end job, wife that's about to leave him you know just about an alcoholic if not already is about as good a stereotype as the spirit journey Mm -hmm. and with a spirit guide and you know does it have some basis in reality sure is it a good stereotype to have no but you know does it have some validity yeah is it something that we should recognize as a stereotype? Yes. Um, and so, so yeah, I, th- I, th- I sort of think all of those things and, and are very much true and why the author puts them out and puts them out sort of in the same, some specifics and some generalities and, and hits all the major points that paint the right picture. Yeah, and I certainly think that by, you know, having this authentic experience within the narrative of the story where you go into the pod and you have the experience and then that is paralleled at the end of the story with you coming out of the pod out of this other experience like it is 
it is turtles or neon sheep heads or whatever you want to say <laughs> all, all the way, the way the down. Night. Yeah, right? Like, um, we never come out of this story into an authentic experience. And that was kind of what I was getting at earlier with, like, what happens next. Well, we don't know because we don't, we, we don't get a sort of reality in at all in this um as soon as we leave one um simulation right again in another one i, I would even say that uh, the idea of getting an authentic experience through this kind of voyeuristic way through this imitation through this virtual reality the author's kind of commenting that even that that is by its nature inherently flawed mm -hmm. that the only way that you could do this kind of thing is by making it tropey by making it packaged because there's no way you could actually literally experience what not someone else's authentic life would be. Mm -hmm. uh, any way of attempting to do that would be hitting just these kind of cultural tropey high points as a way of explaining it, even if it's trying to do so in a more, uh, if it's trying to give you a different perspective on it than what the, the stereotypes you're bringing to the table are. Yeah, I, I guess the, uh, I've sort of quickly been browsing through the uh, poem of how to write the great American Indian novel. And it, I think that's what it is intending to evoke and talk about like what the tropes are and how consistent they are and they're all the same and then the the punch of the poem is in the last two lines that are the quote of you know the white people will be indians and all the Indians will be ghosts um because the the tropes are made so they are palatable to a white audience mm. um and i think that Rebecca Roanhorse is taking the two tropes, one that is in some ways like more palatable in media of the noble warrior and the one that is not as palatable to to our culture, the uh, sort of desolation and uh, rampant alcoholism and things that are endemic to certain Indian cultures has sort of the two sides of these are the stereotypes, but neither of them are a true experience. Mm-hmm. Well, we have talked for about two hours off a 5,800-word short story. <laughs> yeah, it, and, it, and the, the podcast that we're going off of, I believe, is well under... It's like 55 minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. with intro and, you know, yes. uh, information and, and on, ads on the ads and all end. of that, yeah. So yes. um, let's just let go. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, um, she's taking it out of your hands. I'm going to stop coughing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and maybe next week we can turn to a more fun and murder-filled. Um... <laughs> no wondering about fundamental problems in our culture, murder mystery. Um, well, there are different cultural problems that we're not as familiar with, but yes, or at least I'm not. And uh, I shouldn't say that this was not fun. A this lot was of fun. a delight. Yeah. It was. I mean, I thought it was it was a fun story, and and I think that it is in, intensely culturally relevant, and I thoroughly appreciate that it won the awards that it did, and I think that, and you know, it's going to be hard to not go back to it, but I think that it really did deserve them and deserves to be read in a way that I didn't enjoy binting. Mm -hmm. hmm. It it um trying to. That same author, the first short story of hers that we read about the magical Negro. Mm -hmm. Yes. That had a lot of common similarities in my mind to this story. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was dealing in a lot of the same issues and kind of approaching them in, in similar ways. 
Um, a little bit more on the nose mocking of them maybe than this one is. Yeah, but yeah, a little more in your face. Um, yeah, but it, but all have been a pleasure, and talking about them, you guys has been great too. Yes. Um, but while people are waiting for us to produce more content as we delve into murder mysteries and the likeness. BJ, if they want to listen to this and more, where can they go? So not only is there a listening experience, but there is also a visual experience <laughs> that I briefly mentioned. Um, we are having Slack conversations uh, along with our reading of these books um, when I can convince Spencer to uh, participate in these things. And I was in it for uh, like 30 minutes. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I. That is true, but I did have to uh, text you beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find all of all of the content that's associated with our uh, various podcasts, including this one on mangumtalks.com. Um, we have uh, a number of different podcasts. Uh, so right after the finishing of Game of Thrones, we have just started out a new podcast called uh, Mangum TV, mm-hmm. I believe. Mangum Talks TV, I think it is. Yeah. That sounds right. Um, and uh, Spencer and Lee are reprising their uh, deep delves and discussions of uh, different TV shows with Chernobyl. Um, and apparently I've been tasked with giving Lee tons of grief when he has most recently tried to explain and discuss what a nuclear reactor is. Um, there is also Mangum Hoops, um mangum laughs which hopefully there will be an episode coming out soon um as well as whiskey on the weekend which uh we have at least one or two episodes that should be coming out soon though i again don't have much control over that though i might try and uh exert some soon um and hopefully we have a new episode coming up there um and i think those are the four shows that are going on at the moment um, maybe we'll have more in the future and you as again you can find them on mangumtalks.com apple itunes stitcher podcast addict wherever you uh deign to download those uh shows that that you so delightfully consume um and if you have any questions comments or anything else that you'd like to let us know um you can go to megantots.com and click contact us in the upper right hand corner and uh somebody will at least look at and possibly address your uh concerns mm-hmm. well th- thank you all for tuning in for our uh, authentic mangum talk mangum reads experience hope you guys enjoyed it and looking forward to next week T- till then everybody bye y'all have a good night keep reading something good